Mike Live returns this week to answer one very simple question. How the hell did that happen? Welcome to episode 62 of Mike Live. Let's go! Yes, it is a warm welcome to episode 62 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101. And this time we are looking back on the British round of the World Superbike Championship, um, which did not go to the form book in any way, shape or form. Uh, we went into the weekend talking about two all-time records that could be broken by the two Kawasaki factory riders. One of them was, uh, but in the end, that even got overshadowed by history made elsewhere as Michael van der Mark became the first ever Dutch winner in the World Superbike Championship, uh, as well as the first rider to win for Yamaha on their brand new R1. Not only did he win one race, but he went double Dutch by winning the second race on the Sunday. We will talk all about how he did it in an incredible weekend in Superbike racing um, at Donington Park. We'll also talk about history made elsewhere as Toprak Razgatioglu became the first Turkish rider to stand on a World Superbike podium. How on earth did he do that? Um, and we'll also cover all the other stories as Ducati sunk without trace. Aprilia had a stronger weekend than they've had for a long time uh, and everything else from the World Superbike weekend, including the British wildcards. We'll also talk about the International R6 Cup, as Greg Haynes termed World Supersport last week. This time, the Wheel of Fortune landed on Sandro Cortese. Uh, and we will talk all about Anna Carrasco's second consecutive dominant victory from pole position as she took a stranglehold on this year's Supersport 300 Championship. Uh, we'll also cover all the big news this week as the Alaban TT gets underway and the MotoGP season enters its critical phase with European rounds in the next few weeks, including arguably it's dueling the crown this weekend, the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello. Uh, joining me to talk about all of that on another busy weekend here on Bike Live, it's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Magic Mike rules the air. Uh, uh, Jonathan Ray gets mugged off by by Turkey's new finest, and uh, yeah, MotoGP city season as well as motorbike city season has gone completely insane. Um, this this is going to be a nice, quiet, casual week. Um, what am I talking about? It was bloody ridiculous again. <laughs> yeah, and once again, proof why we don't do predictions. Uh, no, we're terrible show because because we're terrible at them. And even if we'd made the most safer predictions possible last weekend, we'd have still been wrong. Um, so it's just as well that we don't bother. But yeah, an awful lot to get through. Um, you've been voting uh, as we uh, record this on the name for this week's Twitter episode. We believe the winner is going to be Magic Mike. But there were several other options. We could have gone with Double Dutch. We could have gone with Turkish Delight. So much we could have gone with. Um, <laughs> but in the end, uh, Magic Mike wins the day, just as he did um, last weekend. We'll cover all of that uh, in just a moment. But first, uh, let's tell you about the places you can find us. Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. On Twitter, you can follow us at Motorsport underscore 101. Our YouTube channel, where you can find the entire Day of Classic stream uh, on demand. Day of Classics 3 took place this previous Sunday, covering the Monaco Grand Prix and the Indy 500. Uh, a day that was very much enjoyed if you're Australian. Um, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101 to find all of that. Um, if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both of our weekly shows, um, it's Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. If you back us at the $5 level, you'll earn yourself early access to our podcast. Um, back us at the $10 level and you'll earn access to our Discord server, which will allow you to listen to our recordings, to our podcasts as they take place. Essentially, you get to listen to them live. 
Um, so a great incentive for you uh, to do that. Information about all of this, including written content, um, our list of uh, written contributors is growing by the week. Uh, Patrick Hofstetter has joined us this week, as has the brilliant Hazel Southwell. Um, she's joined us as well to write all about Formula E. That can be found on our... Well, it's a new website. It's the same website, but in a different place. Motorsport101.com um, ah! is the place that you can find it. Dre hasn't tired of hearing that. But yes, indeed, you can now find us at motorsport101.com. Um, Andre, that kind of tops off what's been a pretty manic week, Motorsport 101-wise, because as I say, Sunday saw Day of Classics 3, and well, it was a hoot, especially for Zoe. Oh, oh my god. Um, like, the dulcet Glaswegian tones still rumble in my ears as we speak from the final eight-lap sprint of that race. Um, props to Maris, props to RJ for trying to make Monaco somewhat entertaining. Um, my scorching takes regarding that race... Will be uh, uh, my scorching takes regarding that race will be on episode 142, probably early next week when that comes out. But um, yeah, stay a classics free. I sadly wasn't there for the Monaco Grand Prix, probably for the best, um, given, given how I, given my general thoughts of that shit show. But the Indy 500 was was a blast as always. Again, massive thanks to everyone that was involved in that one. Me, um, King, camping in Connor's house, which I thought was quite funny. Um, Zoe was there. RJ was there. Krista Harday. We had, we had Krista Harday in there as Roman reporter from the media center, which I think is just the coolest thing ever. Um, and we again, we, we doubled the M101 Google Hangout record that we had. Over 80 of you were watching the final uh, handful of laps from Indianapolis as Will Power uh, took, uh, took a fantastic Indy 500 victory. And Zoe absolutely lost her mind. As mentioned, all the all of the Day of Classics three, which I believe is over five and a half hours of full on-demand content, is on our YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash um, Motorsport 101. You check that all out on there. It's all there for you to enjoy. You can actually watch along with the live chat as it goes on. That's a new YouTube feature where they'll play the messages on the replay as they happened, which I think is quite a nice little thing they've borrowed from twitch so you can have that on there yeah get get, get yourself over there now like i said there's plenty of content wherever you want to find it um here from most part 101 as dre mentioned uh episode 141 and 142 quite possibly certainly one of those 141 will probably be uploaded by the time you're listening to this um mm-hmm. as dre mentioned that's all concerning the 102nd indy 500 episode 142 um covering the monaco grand prix get yourself over to monospot101.com now, now you can find um, all of our weekly podcasts and all of our written content um, over there. Right then, let's get on with this show, Bike Live, and let's look back on the UK round of the World Superbike Championship. The round that we kind of teed up last week as the battle between the two Kawasaki riders, um, Tom Sykes and Jonathan Ray. Sykes, of course, going for the all-time pole record. He did get it. We'll cover that later. Um, and Jonathan Ray, who, of course, was going for the all-time wins record. Amazingly, he didn't get it. Um, but uh, he, he but he wasn't denied it by his teammate. It was someone else. Um, and in a brilliant piece of commentary by the always brilliant Greg Haynes, who of course was with us on last week's show, I loved the um, the sort of the fate of it all. In that Jonathan Ray was chasing win number sixty, and in the end, on both occasions, it was rider number sixty that denied him <laughs> that record. Um, that rider in question is Magic Michael Vandermark. And uh, starting with race one, Dre. Um, I mean, it was teed up, as I mentioned, as a battle between the two Kawasaki riders, and they were block-passing the shit out of each other on lap one, um, which wasn't yes. a good sign. Um, and 
in the early stages, I was thinking, hey, this is weird. We've got Vandermark, Lowe's, and Savadoria keeping up with these guys. Well, I was expecting it right. to be a Kawasaki benefit up the front. Then slowly they dropped away. Savadori fell back. The pace was too quick for him. Lowe's then fell back. Pace was too quick for him. And by about half distance, I started to think, hang on. Not only is Vandermark staying with these guys, but he's climbing all over the back of them. Yes. It, which, which again, was just, which was just extraordinary. Like, Kawasaki do not have the pace to break this Dutchman on the Yamaha R1 that has never won a World Superbike race in its current guise. And it was astonishing, wasn't it? Vandermark, as soon as he was given an open door by Jonathan Ray, he powered through it. And by the time he got past Jonathan Ray, he needed a lap to pass Sykes, and he just checked straight out of there. Yeah, it, it was a bizarre race. Because this, this, this entire weekend went so far against the World Superbike form book or pecking order that that's been established in the last couple of years and the way the weekend was playing out it was looking very much like kawasaki was still the team to beat um sykes broke the pole record jonathan ray was right behind him it looked like it was going to be another kawasaki dogfight for and the they victory were one and two in all three friday sessions like gran- indeed granted so- only one of them was dry which might well be a key reason why they didn't dominate right. but yamaha like there was no sign through any session until the race but Yamaha had the pace to go with the front guys. Right. There was no indication of that whatsoever, which made it all the more surprising than when, when Michael did come through. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was astonishing. I mean, like I'm, I'm going to establish from now, this has been coming for Michael Vandermark for quite some time. Um, I think of the guys that have not been on Kawasaki and Chikati, I think Michael has shone the brightest and probably been the closest to being a first time winner. Um, out of those guys, and maybe except for Javi Forez, given his breakout season so far. But Vandermark's been a guy that's contested for wins in Aston in the past. He was, uh, you know, close at, uh, at Thailand, I think, last Mizano season. last year as well. He led for a long time. He probably should have won that one before the before the rim fell off. Um, so, yeah, like, Vandermark has had many a moment where he's looked like he can get he can break the glass ceiling and get that first W. And, yeah, this I think, in my opinion, this was coming, and I'm glad it's come along now. I mean, you'd have to go back 51 races for the last time a Kawasaki or a Ducati did not win a World Superbike race, and sadly, that was Nicky Hayden's final victory in race one at Sepang in 2016. And that was the last time a bike that wasn't red or green effectively has won in World Superbike. So it made a great stat than that. It was the first time in World Superbike history that a race at Donington Park has not been won by a Kawasaki or a Ducati. Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah. Uh, There's there's a third really, really good sporting Michael out there. Made a good Lord help us all from Dutchland. (laughs) Um, it's it's not a good sign for anybody, but uh, yeah, I said it, it was it was it's been a long time coming for Michael. He's been knocking on the door for a good you know three or four goes at this, and uh, yeah, I'm glad it finally happened. Michael's been I mean, a guy that's always had the quality to prove he can win races, and I'm glad he's got the, yeah he had the first of two here this weekend because it's been coming and he's shown he's had class to do it, and yeah, he's been fantastic in that regard. Yeah, and I'm really glad that it was it was an earned victory. Like he, he didn't look into it in any way, shape, or form. He chased down and then beat the riders with a combined 93 World Superbike wins between them. Um, mm-hmm. In Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes, two of the top six all-time uh, record holders in terms of wins in the history of the series. Um, and Vandermark just basically went out there and beat the pair of them on a circuit that was supposed to a suit one of the riders in terms of Sykes, who's um, won 
more races around Burlington Park than anyone ever. Um, and Jonathan Ray, who's more, won more superbike races than anyone ever, with the exception of Carl Fogarty, um, which, of course, was the record he was trying to break um, last weekend. Um, so Vandermark goes and wins race one, um, which kind of took us all by surprise. There was a bit of a novelty about it. Hey, Vandermark's finally got his first win, and, and we're all delighted to see him get his first win. But I don't think any of us, even at this stage, Dre, were quite expecting what we saw on the Sunday. I don't think any of us were necessarily expecting this to be a Vandermark double weekend. Um, we kind of thought, hey, Kawasaki will get their shit together tomorrow uh, and Jonathan Ray will probably win, um, given that he's much better at Sykes from coming through the third row. Um, mm-hmm. And he looked to have the stronger pace of the two Kawasaki's. Well, he did because he finished ahead of Sykes in race one. Um, mm. So we weren't necessarily expecting Vandermark to do what he did in race two, especially given that Alex Lowe, who was his teammate on pole position for race one, got out front early on, got a second and a half lead. And... That was what we saw from Vandermark in race two. Given that he was at various stages behind both Lowe's and Jonathan Ray in that race, uh, was astonishing. It was it was that old sporting cliche that we talked about pre-show, where often you'll see a rider take his first win or his first podium. You see it in car racing as well, where you see a visible, noticeable step up in their game when they get their first win. There's a noticeable increase in performance. And that's exactly what we saw from Vandermark. He was visibly two or three levels higher than he'd almost ever been before. For him to take a win in that kind of fashion, which is the kind of win that we're only used to seeing Jonathan Ray take in World Superbikes, was incredible. Yeah, like the only man that has really done that whole climb from ninth to win fairly comfortably, guys, since we had the reverse grid rules last year, has been Jonathan Ray, really. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Alex, Alex Lowe's in this case makes for a great yardstick. He started the race from pole position. The first time he started a world superbike race from pole, um, well, effectively anyway, um, and yeah, like Michael just like you think he didn't rush it, he didn't bully people out of the way like Jonathan did in the early going because he's often very good at that. Michael took his time, he picked his spots, and he picked people off, and he clawed his way up the field and. You know, it felt natural when he got to the front. You could see Jonathan Ray was overriding the bike, and we'll get into why that was in a second. But yeah, like Michael made it look very comfortable in the end. He, he, he had it, he, he, by all accounts, he seemed to have it all under control. He picked people off where he needed to. He made the critical overtakes when he needed to. He was able to bite back and fight people like Jonathan um, in the later stages of the race and just never panicked. He, 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 he rode like he knew he had the best bike on the day. And it showed. It, it, it was a different Michael Vandermark in that second race. It was one that I think looked a lot more confident and a lot more comfortable out there. Almost like a monkey had come off his back. Now he'd gotten the first victory um, the day before. Um, yeah, just a brilliant, a brilliant performance to come through ninth from the grid like that and, and still win is um, which, which, which is basically unheard of if you're in, if you're not in a bike in green. Um, is very impressive indeed. Mm, it is, and and uh, I've got another point on Van der Mark as well to make in a moment, but. Um, I want to mention this because I, I watched that race live on my lunch break at work. I kind of it's, it kind of helps where it, it falls on that particular day that you're in charge of your department. You can kind of go for your lunch break when you want. So I timed it so I could go when World Superbike Race Two was on, um, given that it's about a half hour race. Um, and I have to say, Dre, for my money, because we had the three way battle at the front for a long period between Vandermark, Lowe's, and Ray. We also had the mm-hmm. late emergence of Top Rack. We had the, the battles behind with Chance Davies trying to come through. We had the rain in the air. For my money, I know we had the pit stops and the shit show of Race 2 at Phillip Island, but for my money, 
that was the World Superbike race of the season so far. What about you? Oh, God, it, it, it was mental. If anything, it died down a little bit with the last three or four laps ago. We, we didn't really get a quote-unquote grandstand finish um, besides maybe top rack um, coming through right at the end. But, um, yeah, it's, it's one Alex of those things Lowe's where... was fighting for his life out there, wasn't he? Yeah, Lowe's emptied the tank. He, he gave everything on that second race. He just did not have the legs to keep up. Um, with with Jonathan Toprak and, and Michael in the end of in the end of that one, unfortunately, but yeah, I think that was probably the best World Superbike race of the season so far. Um, all those guys that were critical of the reverse grid rules just got vindication for that for that race, as given how carnage filled it turned out. Like like the middle portion of that race was ridiculous. Um, so much action, so many guys trying, you know, desperate moves to get around each other. A lot of booty in. We had a lot of runners in two different groups fighting hard. Um, and again, we even had a bit of a, a shock finish at the end scene top rack come through. But yeah, for my money, I think like, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think race two um, is certainly up there with the best that Worlds has had so far. So maybe Aragon race one might be the only other contender for me. Mm. But um, a fantastic race by, by all accounts. Yeah, because uh, you could see, uh, as Greg Haynes said on commentary, you could see just how much Alex Lowe's wanted that. Um, having mm. seen having seen his teammate take Yamaha's first win in the in the previous race the day before, Lowe's wanted that badly in race two, um, and so and there was that great image of uh, it, it reminded me a bit of Yanone on Marquez and, and Rossi in Philip Island all those years ago where there's that shot into the Melbourne Loop of My- Michael Vandermark diving up the inside of Jonathan Race to take the lead, <laughs> and Alex Lowe's just piles up the inside as well of Jonathan Race yeah. to, to try and take it. He, he wanted that so badly. Um, and he, he contributed so much to that race. It was a brilliant race to watch. Um, and as far as Michael Vandermark is concerned, um, as you say, he has been knocking on the door for a couple of years now of, of taking a victory. He's put in race-winning worth performances in the past, perhaps not had the bike um, to really finish it off. Um, and I don't know if this is slightly premature, but it felt like an opening of the floodgates moment to me. Um, it, it felt like, especially given that he backed it up with a winning, a winning race too, it felt like Michael van der Mark making that noticeable, visible step up to say that he is now an elite world superbike rider. Am I slightly premature there, or do you agree with it? Uh, Does he have uh, to win again this year for that to happen? Maybe. Um, it's hard to say, because... For me, it was, the, it was the nature of the wins that spoke so loud for sure, me. Sure, sure. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, for me... Um, I'm 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 a little bit of a hold your sort of guy on this one, only because like the like second through sixth right now in World Superbikes is so close, it's hard to stand out right now. And Vandermark's always had these flashes of brilliance in World, so like I I'm not sure this is anything new. That, that if you're on the side of Vandermark being that good, then this wouldn't surprise you all that much because he's he's been able to lead and, and and you know been able to challenge for wins in the past. I'm not going to say he is or isn't elite, um, but what I will say is he's tied for third in the championship. He's actually now ahead of Tom Sykes on countback mm. um, due to that win. And, you know, if you look at his results, you know, he already had three podium finishes going into this into this weekend. It, it, I, I will say this. It reminds me a lot of the second half of the 2015 BSB season when Josh Brooks just opened the can in the second half of the season and looked practically unbeatable after he seemed to find something on that Yamaha. I don't know if this will hold up, 
Um, we've got Bruno, which again, no one's really raced around in, in these bikes for years at a time. So Bruno will be very interesting when we get around to that. Um, again, he was strong at Masano last year. So again, that could be another one to keep an eye on. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more because, you know, there, there's an, for me, there's an established top two mold and that's Ray and Davies. And I think, I think everybody else is kind of in that second group right now. But um, to, for, for Van der Mark to do what he did that on that weekend, on that Yamaha, especially in race two, to win that from ninth on grid, I can't blame anyone that that will now put him in that elite tier with the very best in world the world has got to offer. It's 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 the first time he's, he's really looked like he's completely benched at its lows. Who's he's, he's now got a. 45 point advantage on in the championship mm. um yeah that was that, that was that, that was a key one for me the fact that he, he distanced himself from alex lowe's at a lowe's track it's alex lowe's home track um you know that's that's the circuit where you'd expect alex lowe's to be stronger than anywhere else um and for van der Mark to just completely put him in his place around a circuit like that was incredible um and, and yeah in, in many ways whether van der Mark can follow this up is in many ways down to yamaha more than it is to down to michael um, because, like you say, you could argue that Van der Mark's always been this good. Uh, it's just a case of him waiting for Yamaha to get their R1 into a spot where it can actually deliver these results. So, yeah, Bruno and Laguna Seca that follow next and Mizano before we go into the summer break are going to be really interesting. Because in many ways, Dre, the question isn't so much can Van der Mark follow this up, is was this just a flash in the pan from a Yamaha point of view, or are they genuinely now a match for Kawasaki and Ducati? Whoa, 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 everybody. Calm down here. Um, no, um, in all seriousness, it's hard to say. I need to see more. Like, like well, that's, that's what I'm saying. If Vandermark could follow this up, for many, many, many ways, it's more down to Yamaha for him to be able to do that than Vandermark himself. Well, what, there, there, like, there's no greater incentive. You have a rider that can, that can win races. Like, if you've got a rider of Vandermark's talent that can go out there and win races then you should do everything in your power to try and, you know, bring him back into play. Like, you you now know you've got the proof of concept in Vandermark, who's a great rider. Give him more Yamaha. Like, you're R1. You, you've taken a lot of pride in this. You certainly did when Josh Brooks won the British domestic title, but then decided not to hire him for the world team, which I still think was a bizarre decision. Um, but it, it, it's it's been a bit of a messy time for Yamaha, um, especially in the MotoGP series. So, hey... You know, it's still kind of terrifying to me that Yamaha now have more World Superbike wins than they do, like, MotoGP wins this season. But um, by any measure, like, they they have a potential star in Vandermark, and they could they could very easily lose him to MotoGP. I mean, we saw him have a wild card appearance. Yeah, like, like, you don't want to lose a talent like that. So if you're Yamaha, you should be doing everything in your power to try and retain his services. Hmm. And like I say, it's going to be very interesting to see what Yamaha deliver going forward. Because in fairness, we, we spoke about them last week in that Yamaha have arguably been one of the disappointments of 2018 so far. And they haven't made that step up. Well, now they've made it. Now they've finally got that first win with the R1, their first two wins. So the last thing we want to see now from Yamaha is for them to turn up at Bruno and go right back to where they were. Um, pre-Donington, finishing 5th and 6th every week, that, or 6th and 7th. That's the last thing we want to see from Yamaha. We want to, we want to see them genuinely up there now, um, putting a third team up there, third different bike up there that can win World Superbike races um, on any given weekend. So it's going to be fascinating uh, to see how they go forward. Um, let's talk Kawasaki then. And really, in fairness, Dre, when we're talking Kawasaki, 
for this weekend, given that we spoke about Ray and Sykes a lot, we have to really speak about the top Kawasaki, which was, on race two terms, top rack, uh, Razgati Oglu. Uh, a race performance that came from absolutely nowhere. Um, not least because he didn't have any kind of reverse grid advantage. He got knocked off on the final lap by his wildcard teammate, Leon Haslam, in race one, and had to start 10th oh. on the grid um, for race two. Um, incredible confidence that he showed in the conditions where you know rain was falling. But in fairness, even when the rain started to fall, he was already up ahead of Sykes and Davies by that point anyway. Um, that right. really enabled him to jump across the gap to get to the top three. Um, and whilst it may have come from nowhere, Dre, that kind of performance right there explains why so many people, including the reigning world champion Jonathan Ray, have spoken so highly about this guy. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm, I must admit, the way season had gone, it looked like he was a, it looked like he was punching against the barbed wire fence. He, he couldn't crack the top eight to save his life, really. Um, I mean, the top seven in Worlds is is really stacked at the moment, and it's hard to make a real dent in that at the moment, unless you're on factory machinery. But uh, that was a that 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 right performance in race two, right there. Again, as you say, was the exact reason why people rate this kid so highly. Um, that was world class from top rack, absolute top draw. Um, like that is why Jonathan Ray was was you know so impressed by his testing pace and being able to see what he was able to do at Portimao, and that could be a fun one to watch for him as well because mm. he was he was extremely fast round there in preseason testing. But um, a, a, as you say, like this this is exactly why Keenan's had such so, such faith in this kid. This is exactly why Jonathan Ray has been very complimentary about him. And I saw a couple of comments on Instagram like Jonathan gave Toprak an almighty salute on his Instagram page after that race, saying that was a top performance. Um, and yeah, he, he was he was basically mugged. Uh, and it, it was a stunning pass into the Crane of Curves as well that, that got top rack into second place. And um, again, as you said, we get to start from P10. He didn't have that you know, that reverse grid come into play. He was anything. He was recovering from the, from the mistakes that he, he was making um, in race one when he took out Haslam. So for him to come through to the field from 10th and then finish there, only a handful of seconds off the victory in the end, um, a, a well-measured, very disciplined, uh, ex- you know, exceedingly fast ride from top rack. And that... Is if, if, he, if he rides like that frequently, he's going to be a future world champion in this sport because that was uh, stunning work from Top Rack. Yeah, it was absolutely an incredible stat on that. It's the first time um, since, uh, since Qatar 2014 um, that the top Kawasaki rider in a race has not been either Jonathan Ray or Tom Sykes, um, which which is incredible. That, that Qatar 2014 race, of course, is that famous race where Loris Bass did not let Tom Sykes through. Um, that was the last time that neither of those two were the top Kawasaki rider over the line. Razgatioglu beating Rayan Sykes um, over the line. And and that was what was particularly impressive for me, is that when he came up behind the reigning three-times world champion on the final lap, he just motored past him. He just completely uh, emasculated him at one of the fastest corners on the circuit at Donington Park. Um, you know, he, just, he just side past him at the craners. And I was thinking, you do know that's the reigning world champion you're doing that to. Um, but but top rack, we we were told about him that he's he's a he's a hard charger. He's no respect of reputations. He you know he just goes for it and he showed it. And I, I'm with you. I mean, he it is the kind of ride that you know tells us that he's got a big future in the sport. And 
you always think, don't you, when you look at great riders later on in their careers and you think of, there's always that moment where you think that's the moment he arrived. It's like, there it is. And and I, you kind of help but feel that with Toprak, that was the moment. That was the moment he elevated himself and suddenly became um, a rider that we're all taking very, very seriously in World Superbikes. It was an incredible, incredible performance. Um, I know Hazel Southwell, who was there um, drinking unlimited Prosecco on Sunday, um, very much enjoyed uh, Toprak's performance. <laughs> Um, <laughs> she was very, very keen for us to um, to heap praise on on young Toprak, and yeah, what yes. incredible, yes. incredible ride it was! One of the rides of the World Superbike season um, so far uh, from Toprak Razgatioglu to finish second, his first World Superbike podium, the first time ever a Turkish rider has stood on the roster in the World Superbike class, because of course Kin Toprak never made it to the World Superbike uh, class. And, um, and let's not forget as well, still only 21 years old. 21 oh, years ooh. old. Um, Stunning. Just his 12th World Superbike start um, uh, as well for Top Rack. And yeah, he is he is going places, serious places. And uh, yeah, uh, and a brilliant, brilliant weekend. As far as the Fatchy boys are concerned then, um, Jonathan Ray first. Of course, he has to wait for the uh, all-time wins record. He still shares it with Carl Fogarty. He'll now have to try and break it at Bruno. Um, in, in a week's time, um, but in in championship terms, Dre still a pretty good weekend for Jonathan Ray. Uh, all told, he's extend, extended his championship lead because of the disastrous time uh, that the Ducatis had. We'll talk about them in more detail uh, in a moment. But he is now sixty four points clear uh, of second place Chas Davies and um, some eighty two points clear of the two riders that now share third, Sykes and Vandermark. Um, Despite failing to win, this was another weekend where, in the bigger picture, Jonathan Ray was kind of the big winner, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, are you really going to complain about your eighth consecutive podium finish? Um, when you're doing that, you're giving your rivals very little room for error. And that's that's been the core backbone of Jonathan Ray in these last four championship seasons, is that he, he, he bullies you into making mistakes or having to ride beyond your limit to give yourself any sort of chance. He still picked up 36 very useful championship points by finishing second and third. Only Michael Vandermark had more this weekend. No one else was really close besides him. Sykes, who we expected to be much stronger this weekend, just didn't come together for it at all. Davis was way down the order. So, yeah, absolutely big net gain for Jonathan Ray. He's now got a whole race weekend in hand um, with, with a 64-point advantage. And we're now... You know, coming towards halfway through the season, it's not a good sign for the rest of his rivals because again, they Vandermark was the was the equivalent there of beating the field up because Vandermark wasn't really in title contention or anything really near it until that double victory happened, and now he's only eighteen points off Chaz for second, um, which is which is crazy. So yeah, Jonathan Ray really is the big winner in all of this, despite not actually winning a race for, um, in, in a weekend for the first time. You'd have to go back to Philip Island. Uh, for, for the last time he left the, a race weekend without a victory. So, yeah, okay. I, don't, I mean, going by his Instagram reaction, going by social media, Jonathan didn't seem too, didn't seem too irked by uh, second and third. He, he, he seemed to realise that was about as much as he was going to get for the weekend, especially with the race two issues he suffered with arm pump. <laughs> yeah, we're going to mention that, actually. And, uh, yeah, in terms of the championship, it, it was very noticeable for me after race two when he was asked about the next round and he was very bold and said he's very, very confident um, for the next round of the championship because, of course, it is Bruno, the circuit where Kawasaki tested uh, immediately after Rimmler. Uh, oh, sorry, immediately after uh, 
where was it? It was after Aragon, wasn't it? And they, they made that big breakthrough and then suddenly went on a six-race winning streak um, from there. Um, Ray was super strong at Bruno in the test when when they made that breakthrough, so he may well be very, very difficult to beat uh, in the Czech Republic next weekend. But as you say, Dre, we were kind of wondering as we watched the race on Sunday why Ray's late race charge kind of fizzled out because he was setting fastest laps around mid-distance to jump across that gap um, to the Yamahas who had kind of distanced themselves ever so slightly up front. As it was turned out, as you say, the guy had arm pump. And we're not used to seeing riders at all have arm pump these mm. days. Not less, a world champion. Very odd. I mean, who knows what could have caused that. Um, but, uh, I mean, I was watching race two, and I could tell just by watching him that, you know, he did not look like his normal self out there. Jonathan was sliding a lot more than usual. He was aggressive, especially in the second half of race two than usual. Um yeah, so I was curious what was going on. I, I honestly thought he treaded his tyres, and I thought that's what did it. I thought he'd been overcooked it on the tyres because of all the slide, and I thought, well, that's what's going to cause the problem here. Um, turns out I was wrong. Turns out that, you know, he had arm pump, and, you know, because of that, he was having to turn in earlier, you know, more stress on the bike, more sliding around. Um, yeah, just not Jonathan's usual riding style at all, and, you know, we, you don't need an extensive guide as to how arm pump can can ruin your day i mean we've, we've heard many a horror story about that with guys like danny pedrosa and and uh, paul spagger who's had a couple of bad arm pump issues over the over the last few years and um yeah very peculiar to see that happen to a guy with such normally such a smooth riding style in jonathan ray a guy that doesn't normally have to push 100 percent all the time given how you know he's, he's such a brilliant combination of rider and bike but uh yeah, you could tell by watching, and that wasn't his normal self, and it showed. But, um, yeah, I mean, luckily the damage wasn't too great. Still a third place, um, which, again, really isn't all that bad in the grand scheme of things. Um, he'll have a couple of weeks to uh, maybe just drain it off, and hopefully he'll be all right for Bruno, uh, and, it, and it won't be any further than that. But, uh, yeah, just overall, um, yeah, a, a bizarre race, too, for Jonathan. I didn't think... Um, I didn't think that would happen, and uh, yeah, uh, very bizarre to see again a, a world champion and rider of his quality suffer an arm pump. Mm, yeah, an unusual, unusual occurrence for Jonathan Ray. Speaking of things we didn't think we'd see, it's very unusual we see a Donington weekend pass without Tom Sykes winning at least one race, and um, he's had for the first time since 2012 a home weekend without a victory. Um, and he wasn't even in the top two in either race. And it was noticeable after race two when he spoke afterwards that he said um, he felt like a rookie and he openly said he was pissed off. I said he felt his actual words were to say I'm pissed off is an understatement. Um, right. You, you know, when Tom Sykes ain't competitive around Donington, something's badly wrong. Whew. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh... You don't normally see Tom Sykes that heated. He's normally quite quite laughy and jokey about race weekends and whatnot. He seems seems like a very jovial sort of guy. Um, so, yeah, very surprised to see him come out of those comments. And to be fair, can you blame him? This is a guy that's won a Donington nine times. And he didn't look in... He wasn't in any sort of contention, really, for either victory on the day in the end, especially in race two, where he just he, he was just nowhere to be seen. He was in that second group. And, again, Tarpak made a mockery of him in terms of overall race pace in the end. So, yeah, it, it, it wasn't... It, I mean, again, nice to get the pole record and all that. I'm sure that meant a lot to Tom. Um, nice cape on the uh, Par Park Ferme mm. celebration. I didn't see that. Well, well played, Tom. Well played. Um, but um, yeah, like I said, just just didn't come together for him in either race. Very bizarre. 
the Sykes was just so off it. Um, again, I think, I think he was bullied out of it more in race one, but race two, apparently wrong choice of tyre. It um, was what did him in. Um, and yeah, it showed. Just never looked in it, really. Um, and yeah, very disappointing for a rider of Sykes' quality, who we know is super, super strong around here. Just very bizarre. And again, it, th- this might be the beginning of the... Uh, of, of the fat lady singing for his time at Kawasaki because uh, that he, he was not happy after that race and you can't really blame him on that one. Yes, he was also heard saying uh, very positive things about the Yamaha R1 as well, um, which, mm. was, uh, which was interesting given that he's been strongly linked with uh, a seat at the Yamaha team next year uh, with potentially Vandermark going the other way uh, to join Kawasaki. Um, yeah, Tom Sykes, as you mentioned, chose the wrong tyre in race two. Um, he essentially was given the option of choosing that tyre because he could have ran it in Sunday morning warm-up. Vandermark won race one on the tyre that was introduced after Imola, um, a new development tyre from Pirelli. Sykes ran the other tyre and then was given the option to test that tyre out, the winning tyre from race one, in the Sunday warm-up and didn't opt to do so. Um, so in many ways, it was his own fault that he didn't uh, choose that right tyre because he had a chance to sample it and see what he thought of it in the Sunday morning warm-up and, and didn't do so. So in, in, as I say, in many ways, it's his own fault. Um, Dre mentioned the record and we, we have to separate the two because, of course, um, the pole record doesn't really necessarily translate into race victories as as was proven at the weekend. Um, but it is a record uh, worth mentioning because, as we said, at the start of the weekend, the all-time wins and polls record were both up for grabs. And any time somebody breaks an all-time record in a world championship of this calibre, it deserves mentioning. So congratulations to Tom Sykes, um, who now has more super poles than anybody in world superbike history. Um, that was his 44th career pole um, in world superbikes, which takes him ahead of Troy Corso. Just for some of the numbers on that. Um, Tom Sykes' 44 poles uh, come in 248 World Superbike race starts, um, which given that you only have one qualifying session for every two races, essentially Mm. it's 44 poles from 124 attempts, um, which is just better than a 1 in 3 ratio, um, which is some going. It kind of levels out. It matches up to Lewis Hamilton's rate of poles in Formula 1 for a bit of context on that. Troy Corsa's 43 poles came from 377 World Superbike race starts, i.e. 188 qualifying sessions or thereabouts when you factor in cancelled races and such like. Um, So he did it at a much quicker rate than Corsa. Um, For some of the numbers, in 2012, he had nine poles in a season, nine poles from 14 race weekends. Uh, He had eight poles in 2013, his championship winning year, including six in a row. Um, 2014, he had five out of 12. 2015, five out of 13. 2016, he also had eight poles that year, including another run of six in succession. Um, without question now, and the numbers back it up, the greatest qualifier, the greatest single lap rider in World Superbike history. So congratulations to Tom Sykes for the record. And as Dre mentioned, the cape that went with it, the, uh, the, the pit board, is it a bird, is it a plane? It's Super Pole Man. Um, to uh, to congratulate uh, Tom Sykes' record. And Sykes mentioning in Super in Part Fermi after the race that, or after the session, should I say, that he had actually been wearing that red shirt, that red undershirt in Super Bowl in the weekends at uh, Thailand and in Aragon, course, where he, he'd equaled the record all the way back in Australia at the start of the season. Mm-hmm. And, he just, and he decided when he got to Donington not to bother. Um, so he just, decided to, <laughs> he just decided to do Super Bowl without it. And of course, Sod's Law, that's the weekend he breaks the record. Um, as it goes. So congratulations to Tom Sykes, but that was literally the only positive he had to take 
uh, from last weekend. He will now go on to Bruno as he looks to try and return uh, to winning ways. Um, another guy that we'll look back on last weekend slightly uh, forlornly is Alex Lowe's, even though on the grand scheme of things, Dre, two fourth places for Alex Lowe's is actually a pretty good weekend. 26 points from the weekend for him. Probably as good a return as he's had from any race weekend all season. Um, but I dare say all Alex Lowe's will be thinking about on the way out of Donington Park last weekend is that he was not the one to take Yamaha's first victory with the new R1. Yeah, on paper, it was his best weekend since Thailand when he finished third and fifth. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely like in, in, in context, as you mentioned, in a vacuum, that would be a great weekend for those as good as he's, as, as he's had all season long. In reality, when your teammate is down the road and was just and just was basically fundamentally just better um in every way um it's 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 gonna be a sour note um it's it's a shame because you could tell by the body language how he was riding and how he was talking about the weekend in general that you could tell that he really 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 wanted that wanted that win at donington he loves donington he lives just down the road he's done thousands and thousands of laps um, of the place he, you could tell he really really wanted it and it just did not happen for him on this occasion um that must be devastating of course we all we all talk about you know teammates and teammate battles um and, you know in yeah in in, in world superbikes and in, in motorsport in general you've got to beat your teammate that's your that's your that's your biggest barometer your biggest yardstick and michael was just stole the show this weekend he really did and lowe's and in a, in a home round, and again, he, he stole the show last year when he had his back of the grid to third performance last year. So, if anything, you could argue he's maybe, he's maybe taken a step back at Donington this year, especially with Michael having the double win that he did. So, when you factor all that in, it's it's a real shame for for Alex, who you know has is, is, is been a real grafter in that team. But now Van der Mark is starting to break free in what was a tightly contested matchup, and that's not good for Alex Lowe's reputation. Hmm, it's not, and and that and that's the key thing. It's that when big teams, both in this panic and indeed in the MotoGP panic, are looking at which riders they're going to sign, and we we kind of thought back when these first these two riders first joined forces at Yamaha uh, at the start of last year, we kind of thought that it's it's kind of un- impossible for both reputations to be enhanced here. One of them is going to be enhanced, and one of them is going to suffer as a result through being beaten by the other, um, and. That kind of weekend from Vandermark is, as I say, that's the kind of performance that distances him from Lowe's and suddenly makes teams both ahead of him in Worlds, Kawasaki and Ducati, for instance, and indeed in MotoGP, suddenly think Vandermark is the one that we need to be building our future team around, not Alex Lowe's, which is, a, which is which sounds terribly harsh on Alex Lowe's because he still had a good weekend and he's still um, up in the top six in the World Championship. In fact, he's just outside it. He's he's a couple of points behind Xavi Forres, who's sixth at the moment in the championship. Um, but that's where that's where we're at now. And that's ultimately, I think, the reason why we're seeing Vandermark linked with Kawasaki and Alex Lowe's linked with Red Bull Honda. Uh, unfortunately, that's just that's the way their, their careers appear to be taking uh, different directions now based on how they're, they're kind of going this season. And Donington Park just kind of crystallized that in terms of where Van der Mark is going. Um, and he's going places far and away above where Alex Lowe's is at the moment. Uh, let's cover a few other teams and a few other factories and how their weekends went. Aprilia had arguably their best weekend so far. Certainly their best combined result in race one with Savadori and Laverty, fifth and sixth respectively. Luis, uh, Lorenzo Salvadori, actually, a terrific weekend, beat Eugene Laverty in both races. Laverty, of course, didn't see the finish of race two, 
Um, but Savidori beat into the flag in race one and then finished a solid seventh uh, in race two. Was only beaten by Tom Sykes on the final lap, otherwise he would have been in sixth. Um, so a good weekend for Savadori, one of his best so far this season. Eugene Laverty, I dare say, is still trying to recover full fitness again um, after that horrendous mm. accident he had back at Thailand. Um, but Dre, we have to mention Ducati. And okay, they didn't have the greatest of weekends um, at Imola based on how well we've expected them to go around there in the past. It's usually a Ch- Chas Davies stronghold. Um, they were also kind of outpaced at Assen by the Yamahas. Of course, Vandermark uh, got on the podium in both races and beat Chas Davies in both races there. But goodness me, Donington Park was a new low for them. I mean, Chas Davies, all right, Chas Davies had the crash on Friday, which left him in Super Bowl 1. He just about squeaked out of Super Bowl 1, finished race 1 down in 8th. Um, and had very, very strong pace. You know, Aruba Ducati were keen to point out that in race two, after a bad first lap where Chas dropped to 12th, he had as good a race pace as the race winners, eventually. Um, you know, after six seconds of the second race, he was six seconds off the lead. He finished the race 4.7 behind. Um, so he was actually quicker than the race leaders for two-thirds of the race. Um, but it's kind of the Maverick Vinales in MotoGP scenario, isn't it, where it was all too late by that point. Um, but really, Ducati's weekend kind of summed up by how way off the pace Marco Melandri and especially Xavi Forres were. Yeah, I'm absolutely right. I mean, Chaz normally goes a bit better than this. I mean, race one in particular, way off the pace in, 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 in race one. Race two, he had the pace again, but the damage was done by a poor start. I get another bad start for Chaz in the early going of a race. He had, he struggled with both of those at Imola. Um, and it's happened again here. Um, Melandri nowhere to be seen at all. Just a, a, a wretched weekend for him. Didn't make it you know, through race one, 11th in race two. Jaffe Forrest had a nightmare, like double DNF in the end. You know, was outside the top 20 in qualifying. And then a what on earth has happened to Forrest there. That was a dreadful season. You might have done better if he hadn't showed up. Um, so 22nd. What the hell is that? And the that, only three ride, the only three riders behind him, Dre, were wild cards: Gino Ria, Nicolo Canepa, and Mason Law, the BSB riders. Yeah, just no, 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 no. This was an unmitigated disaster um, for Ducati, and, and now like Chaz is now sixty-four points off the title. Chaz has now got to look over one shoulder to see a blue Yamaha instead of just Tom Sykes in third. Another battle for second between those dudes. And, you know, Forrest has dropped off altogether. Melandri, there's talk of him being replaced as well. It's, 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 it, like, all of a sudden, the wheels have fallen off Ducati when they were the strongest bike in the field three rounds ago, which is going to make the next rev limit, rev limit adjustments very interesting indeed. Which happened because before, it, bro. Oh, yeah. yeah, so, like, we're after round six, which means that they, they're now liable to change them again. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens here. Is Kawasaki going to get revs chopped off them again? Are they going to give Ducati something back? Yeah, because because Yamaha just dominated the weekend all of a sudden. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the logic or the thought process is going to be as this goes on now. Because uh, oh boy, um, Ducati were nowhere this weekend, and it showed, and the damage was done. Mm. I mean, if I was Dorna, just quickly on that, I I just leave it well alone for now. Just let's let's try and get a pattern of what's happening. Um, because heading into Donington Park, we were all, like I say, we were expecting Kawasaki to clean up um, at Donington Park, and, and therefore it makes their decision fairly easy. Clearly, the Kawasaki is the strongest package by a distance, but 
they weren't at Donington. They were clearly second best to Yamaha. Um, and the, the, you know, the first of the Yamahas in race two wasn't even a factory bike. It was the, you know, factory-ish bike that's running for Pachetti um, that doesn't have the top electronics, but Top Rack still took it to second. Um, and the first Ducati in race one was eighth, as I mentioned. And the first Ducati in race two was only fifth. Um, which was um, Chaz Davies, which was behind two Kawasaki's and two Yamahas. Um, so I don't even know where they'd even begin at the moment, um, the World Superbike Commission, in terms of, you know, which bikes do we need to slow down and which do we need to, you know, give a bit more back? Because, you know, if anything, if you judge it on the last three rounds, then surely Ducati need a bit of help. Um, but again, think, yeah. but again, is that down to riders underperforming, teams underperforming? Because no matter how much Ducati are off the pace, they weren't 22nd on the grid slow. Um, that that Chavi Forres was at the weekend, and uh, Melandri, um, Melandri could only manage. I mean, Melandri was out qualified by Bradley Ray on the BSB Spec Suzuki on Saturday, um, and again, that bike wasn't that slow. Um, you know, again, you have to you have to look at the teams and the riders involved for why they were struggling so much. Um, so yeah, my advice to World Superbike Commission and to Dawn is just leave them alone for now. Uh, and then we'll look at it again at the summer break after we've had Mizano, Bruno, and Laguna. Uh, and maybe Great then we'll break. be in more of a position to, to try and judge what's going on. Um, one other factory that we want to mention, I mean, Honda had a solid weekend. Kamiya, top 10 in both races, um, and was pretty happy, all things considered, with how well he's going, given that, of course, they are running the Magnetic Relic Electronics now, uh, which, of course, we remember Suzuki took so long to adjust to. Um, it mm. appears at this early stage that Honda are getting to grips with it a little bit quicker than Suzuki did back then, um, which is positive to see. Um, but let's talk BM briefly, Drake, because we've barely covered them all season. Uh, Altea BMW and Loris Baz. And on the face of it, their two race results weren't anything particularly spectacular. Loris Baz was seventh in race one, which I think, from memory, matches his best result of the season. I'll double check that in a second. Um, and in race two, he finished tenth. But what we do have to mention with Loris Baz is one of the qualifying laps of the year for Loris Baz on the Altea BMW to stick it on the front row of the grid. Unbelievable. Best of the rest. One of the laps of the year from Loris Baz. A brilliant reminder of how fast he can be. Um, yeah, brilliant. And BMW's been nowhere near the top of the field all season long. They've struggled. We, we, we've talked many a times about BMW's lack of, of uh, factory support um in in the series and Baz is making the best of what's essentially a, a, a tuned bmw s1000 double r so yeah for him to do that and to get it on the front row and then finish seventh in race one in the top 10 in both races fantastic result from Baz. a real nice reminder of Baz's class hmm. and, the, and there is talk uh greg mentioned it on comms at the weekend there is talk that there may potentially be some more bmw factory support returning to world superbikes next year which would be oh god which would be brilliant uh, yes please if, if bmw can come back with some factory support because of course there are rumors that milwaukee might well be jumping back into bed with bmw having ditched their bikes at the end of last year uh the end of the year before sorry to go with aprilia um they may well be going back the bm route and if bmw come back with factory support that would be brilliant because uh, and we will give you the full rundown of what happened in the stock thousand race a little bit later, but they're dominating. Reiterberger on the BM is dominating the Stock 1000 Championship, which just tells you, at a basic level, as you, when you're comparing the stock basic levels, the sh- you know showroom level bikes of all these various superbikes, that BMW is a fantastic piece of kit. Um, yes. it, it just needs some development. It needs a good team and some factory support to develop it up to the point where Kawasaki are, and, and you've got a serious 
spike with some serious potential there. So, so that's, I, I, that's... I've been told by yeah, I've been told by many people that is the highest selling superbike on the planet, mm. and which makes it all the more laughable that BMW choose not to support it and, and get and get it in an actual racing series and give a damn about it. I mean, I mean, and a, a BMW factory team in the old BMW racing colors on again the world's highest selling superbike. Why the hell wouldn't they want that? I do not understand that logic behind it all. And they're focusing more on, on on elements like DTM and touring cars and whatnot, and that's that's their that's their magnum opus right now. But they have a genuinely brilliant road going superbike in the S one thousand, which, as you say, in basic trim, is kicking the ass of the other stock one thousand bikes at the moment. So why wouldn't they do it? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. And the last time BMW ran a factory team in World Superbikes was twenty thirteen. Um, of course, that year, Sykes won the championship out of two Aprilias um, of Laverty and Guintoli, but fourth and fifth in the championship were the BMs um, of Marco Melandri and Chas Davies, who are, of course, currently the factory Ducati lineup. Um, and, Chaz, and Chas Davies took a double victory at Aragon that year. Um, Melandri won at Misano, at Portimao, and in Moscow, the only race that we got that weekend on what was a tragic weekend in World Superbikes that weekend. Um, and then Chaz won again at the Nürburgring uh, that year. So let's count them up. One, two, three, four, five. They took five wins um, in 2013, the last yep. time they actually put some factory support into it. So, yeah, let's come on, BMW, and just chuck a bit more money at this. And, you know. We were to, I, mean, I know Kawasaki are essentially running a MotoGP budget for their Superbike mm. team, and we're not asking them to do that. Um, but a little bit more support, the right team, the right riders, and Baz is a former World Superbike race winner in his own right. Um, there is something there if they just choose to pump a bit more money into it. So um, we'll keep an eye on that and see if that happens um, in future rounds. But yeah, solid weekend, all things considered, um, from Loris Baz. Um, one more line on BS on, on World Superbikes before we move on, and um, you kind of worked out there from the slip of the tongue what I'm going to talk about. It's the BSB riders who wildcarded last weekend, and um, we had a number of them, Bradley Ray, Luke Mossy, Mason Law, Gino Ria um, among them. And in the end, Ray, we didn't quite get the astronomic results that perhaps we dreamed of. We didn't get a Kyle Ride World Supersport scenario. We didn't get... Um, Neil Hodgson or Shaky Byrne doing what they did in previous World Superbike race weekends, turning up as wild cards and winning both races, um, <laughs> which which used to happen back in the day. Um, both series very much running to different specs now. I mean, they they asked um, Neil Hodgson on the coverage on Sunday what's changed, and he basically said that when he turned up as a world as a BSB rider into World Superbikes as a wild card, he essentially had the previous year's factory World Superbike underneath him. Uh, they've been given to they've been, they've been given to the BSB team for him to run in BSB. Um, those days are long gone. So um, unfortunately, Bradley Ray um, was at a bit of a disadvantage. But even so, Dre, um, for him to qualify directly through to Super Bowl two, out qualify Marco Melandri, take put it tenth on the grid, and score points in both races. Uh, Bradley Ray pretty much made his point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this this I mean, to make it into Super Bowl two outright was incredibly impressive from Bradley. Didn't really translate to the race itself with fourteenth and fifteenth down the bottom end of the points. Uh, props to Haslam for finishing ninth in in um, as, out there in race one. Um, it's it's it, it was tough out there, and as mentioned, the like the the BSB. This like this is where BSB and multiple bikes deviate, and I I know. 
there's been dissension in the ranks between Dorna and BSB regarding what they want Superbike development to be and what you know who's allowed what in what classes. It, it, it's it's a messy political landscape. Stop me if you've had that one before in motorsports, but um, it's it, it's always been messy. But it was still a nice showcase. Um, of what the BSB series can do again, I think Ray and um, Bradley Ray and uh, Haslam in particular um, were you know, the standouts of, of of the field in that one. So I, sadly, I've had to downgrade the BSB invasion to a BSB minor inconvenience, but yeah. um, like still an invasion, really, wasn't it? Um, yes, still impressive. Still <laughs> impressive, nonetheless. Absolutely right. Uh, like I say, Bradley Ray. Um, scoring points in both races. Luke Mossy as well, um, scoring points in race two. Um, he finished uh, in 14th. Um, and in fairness, pretty much put that uh, Pedicini Kawasaki in places that Yoni Hernandez has been unable to put it since he joined that team, um, which again puts his performance into some context. A great weekend for him. Uh, Mason Law and Gina Rear, as it goes, both dogged by uh, mechanical and technical problems on their bikes. Um, as the weekend went on. There was also a wild card of uh, Nicolo Canepa, who was riding for Yamaha Motor Europe, who essentially entered an extra bike um, for him. He didn't really trouble the scorers uh, either um, last weekend. Let's say how the two races finished then. Vandermark, the f- debut winner in race one, his and Patty Yamaha's first World Superbike win, ahead of Johnny Ray and Tom Sykes, second and third. Um, Alex Lowe's in fourth, ahead of Savadori, fifth. Uh, and Laverty 6th, and Milwaukee put his uh, line astern. Loris Bass 7th, and to um, confirm what I said a moment ago, that does equal his best result of the season, uh, which he also achieved at Assen Race 1. Um, Chaz Davies only 8th, ahead of Haslam 9th, knocked off his teammate on the final lap. Leon Camia 10th for Honda, um, ahead of Jordi Torres on the MV. Rinaldi on the 3rd of the Aruba Ducatis 12th. Uh, Leandro Mercado 13th, Brad Ray 14th. And PJ Jacobson on the uh, Triple M Honda, beating Jake Gagne on the Red Bull Honda to the final point. Uh, race two again went to Vandermark ahead of the superb top bracket Raskatioglu second. We are going to have to get some serious practice in in pronouncing that name because he is going places. Johnny Ray third, Alex Lowe's fourth again, uh, Chas Davies fifth, Tom Sykes only sixth, Lorenzo Salvadori seventh, Leon Camier in eighth, Jordi Torres for MV ninth. Uh, and Baz dropping to 10th. Marco Malandri's only points of the weekend came in race two. He was 11th ahead of Mikado, Gagne, Mossi and Ray. Championship standings look like this. Jonathan Ray's lead is up to 64 points over Chance Davies in second. Michael van der Mark and Tom Sykes are level on 163 points in third and fourth. Although, as Dre mentioned earlier on, it's van der Mark who has the tiebreaker. He has two wins this season to Sykes' one. Uh, fifth at the moment is Malandri on 136. Um, unbelievably, he has now only scored 86 points in 10 races um, since his double at Phillip Island. Um, only 8.6 points a race he's averaging, so he's effectively averaging an 8th place around, um, which is um, how the mighty have fallen, I suppose, is the phrase you could use for that one. Chavi Forres, likewise, he's also fallen off the face of the earth a little bit with no points at all from Donington Park. and uh, He's 6th on 124, 6th ahead of Lowe's, who's 7th. Toprak is now up to 8th on 78. He's jumped ahead of Lois Baz, uh, who's 9th. And Jordi Torres is 10th uh, in the World Championship. Uh, for riders, for manufacturers, Kawasaki are now 39 clear of Ducati in 2nd. Yamaha are a comfortable 3rd, although they've closed in a bit on Ducati now. Uh, Yamaha trailed Ducati by 39 points. Um, Aprilia are 4th, 5 points clear of Honda, who are 5th. BMW are 6th ahead of MV Augusta, who are 7th. But good news for MV Augusta, you are no longer bottom. That's purely because Bradley Reyes now puts Suzuki on the board with three championship points. They are now eighth in the Manufacturers' Championship. All down 
to the Milky Barking. Right then, Super Sport up next. Well, Super Sport uh, to begin. Super Sport 300s to come um, very, very shortly. Um, and as, Brian, as uh, Greg Haynes brilliantly titled it last week, it is a bit of an international R6 Cup. Uh, this weekend was no exception. And as I mentioned in the intro, the Wheel <laughs> of Fortune this week stopped on the Sandro Cortese section of the board. Cortese taking his second win of the season, joining Jules Clozel as a repeat winner. Um, and... This thrilling championship battle, Dre, that we're getting, this thrilling five-way fight that we're getting in World Super Sports continues to take turn after turn. A couple of weeks ago, it looked like Cluzel was the man to beat, and now Cortese's taken over the championship lead. Uh, a reminder that Sandro Cortese is really, really quick at learning this whole super sport thing. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Again, it's, it feels like you're playing Wheel of Fortune right now with... Uh, with, with, the, with the top six in super sport at the moment, um, any one of them looks like they have the, the ability to win a given race. Again, the, the running order had the top six in the championship just jotted in different orders. And again, it was the top two that finished first and second. Cortese now leapfrogging the field to go into the, going to take the lead off, uh, off Jules Clazelle, who, again, you know, tried his best, didn't have the defense on this occasion. And this time, no. Cortese was able to break free and, and win this time. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you said, it's it's it, it is as um, billed and as advertised at the moment because uh, yeah, at the moment there is no there is no answer for Sandro Cortese um, on that one. Uh, Glazelle was 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 a distant second on this one, but again, right now it's the top six and they're all just 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 taking lumps out of each other right now. There is no standout rider in the class right now. They are, you know, they are all over the place. Um, and that's what makes it so fun at the moment because there is no there's no standout rider at the moment. They're all it's it's a nice surprise to see to see what happens in World Supersport now. And again, again, Cortese, just the better man on this occasion. Mm, it's going all the way to the wire, isn't it? This um, and it could well we we could, it's not inconceivable that we could go to the final round in Qatar and have five championship contenders. Um, sure. Going to the final of the season, what a, what a finish to the season that way because we are now at the halfway stage of the Supersport Championship. Um, six races in um, so it could well go all the way down to the wire between as many as five riders it's brilliant to watch and, and Cortese in the end just breaking away as, as Cluzel got a little bit waylaid trying to um, trying to make what was in, trying to make short work it became very long work uh, of Rafa de Rosa uh, on the MD Augusta and that allowed Cortese to make that little bit of a break uh, out front as you mentioned Ray Cluzel unable to take his third win in a row because he'd won um, with a couple of defensive masterclasses at Assen and at Imola. Um, as you mentioned, unable to repeat this time, but two wins and a second place now for, for Cluzel in the last three races. That's the kind of form that it does win you championships. It absolutely is. It, it's, it's just nice to see Cluzel back at something near his best. And that, that, that was his fourth straight podium finish. Um, we know that Clazelle is a guy that has been such a bridesmaid figure in a World Super Sport. And if you haven't checked out, I, I don't normally plug other podcasts, but if you've listened to Eurosport's Full Throttle, 
There is a good 40-minute interview there with Greg Haynes and Jules Gazelle. Very much worth a listen, if you ask me. Greg, you better appreciate that plug. But um, <laughs> but um, a, 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 a great Again, could, couldn't do much more in the situation that was allowed. It was a very aggressive move that Cortese that put him in front, and Gazelle didn't really have an answer for him. But he just, in the middle just, of him. Indeed, pretty much. Gazelle didn't have an answer for it, and then Gazelle was like, you know, I'm just going to take this second, and that was probably the smart thing to do. Um, again, only seven points off the, off the top right now. Again, as mentioned, his fourth straight podium finish. Um, it's looking like Gazelle's stabilized himself a little bit in that nerds racing team. He's got it. He's, he's, he's got everything hooked up right. And at the moment, he's looking like, you know, he could be the title favorite. I think he's had a little bit more consistency than some of the other runners in that loaded top six. So um, if I had to pin my money on someone to win the title right now, I would probably take Jules Clazelle. Mm, and he's certainly, I think, the sentimental pick, isn't he? Uh, oh, yeah. Those it's always the bridesmaids, three times a runner-up in the Super Sport World Championship, Clazelle. Um, and yes, at the moment, he's second in the championship this year of as well. Course. Uh, of course. Of uh, course. However, Jules Clazelle. Um, but um, before we talk about the other Yamahas that are in contention, we have to talk about the interloper once again um, on uh, alternative machinery. Um, yet again, a rider who I've made no secret in the past, who previously, before he arrived in World Supersport, I did not rate at all, um, Raffaele De Rosa. Um, boy, is he making a believer out of me this year, Dre. I mean, this is now, in a Yamaha-dominated series, three consecutive rostrums for De Rosa on that MV Augusta. Incredible. He's the new Leon Camier. Like, without <laughs> having to chase any ambulances. Um, incredibly impressive. Yeah, Rafael De Rosa, again, give him a prayer. We didn't give him a, and like a second of airtime when we were previewing the season going in. Yeah, we thought our um, team were ruined once they'd lost Jacobson. Yeah, I thought Jacobson was going to be the ticket for him again. He went, he got me, he's now in the world championship proper. And yeah, like, nobody gave Rafael De Rosa a prayer, but he has been so impressive all season long on the MV. And again, as I mean, Greg wasn't joking. It really is an international R6 Cup right now. The top five above him in terms of rule on Yamaha. Luke Staples has jumped on one. Yeah, um, yeah. Stapleford Staples now changed over. So he's you know, if he can't beat him, join him, right? So um, yeah, the way it's going, Rafael De Rosa is the only man in title contention right now. Um, on the, something that's not a Yamaha. So, yeah, the fact he's got three straight third places on that bike, which, again, has no right being up there with where it is at the moment. Um, he's doing a fantastic job. So, yeah, I'm, I'm much props to Rafael De Rosa, who, again, has no right being this high up, but he's 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 doing a brilliant job carrying what is, we all know, a, an MV team that lacks resources. Mm. But, you know, in terms of sheer pound-for-pound pound performance, he's doing an excellent job. Yeah, and when you look at the result. Um, De Rosa was the only MV in the top six. Uh, you don't need to guess who the other five were. Um, and uh, the next MV was Badavini, who's uh, uh, De Rosa's teammate. He was some 11, uh, just in fact, 11.9, near enough 12 seconds um, behind De Rosa at the finish. The next other non-Yamaha was Sheridan Marias' Kawasaki in ninth, and he was a full 22 seconds behind De Rosa. Um, at the end, so he is he is a level above anyone else on any other maker machinery um, besides the Yamaha. So um, a sensational season that Drozzi is having, and he is. I, I guess if we're going to have to call uh, Caracasulo a title contender on 79 points, we have to count Drozzi. You're right on 67. He's 35 off the lead, but uh, we've seen riders come from further back than that to win championships before. So uh, if he can just if he can, if he can make that little step up, that little bit of that little jump to to 
turn some of these podiums into wins, he might well force his way into contention to Rosa. But even if he doesn't, he is having a terrific season. Um, fourth went to Randy Krumenacker, who got the better of um, Lucas Mayas um, a couple of laps from home. Krumenacker loses the championship lead, but he's still very much in contention. But I have to say, Dre, one of the big mysteries now of this season is... The, the, the lack of form, I suppose, for want of a better phrase, of Mahias. He hasn't won now since the opening round in Australia. This is bizarre. Um, we all know he made a big mistake in Imola, and that's cost him big, but Mahias never looked in that at, no. at any point. And it's, it is strange that, you know, um, as it stands at the moment, that uh, Mahias doesn't look like he's going to retain his title if this keeps up for much longer. Um, he's now 12 points behind. I mean, again, he's, he's not had a major DNF, and that's probably the, re the main reason he's still quite close to the top. But as I mentioned, just the one win, that was on opening day. And yeah, at the moment, doesn't look like, doesn't look like he's going to win a race right now. Like He looks like he's dropped off a little bit compared to some of the other R6 runners in the field. I'm not sure what the problem has been. Um, uh, I, I can't I can't speculate on that one, but it's 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 all sorts of weird. I I, I haven't got anything for you on this one. Hmm. I think, <laughs> I think, I think what he's finding is that the the level is so high now, given that there are so many other riders on very very similar machinery to him, is that uh, if you're not at your level, if you're not right at the top of your game, there are now not just there's not just one rider. It's not just Keenan that's going to punish you. There are four other riders on similar machinery that are all going to get ahead of you and knock you back down the field. I think you've got DeRosa on the MV as well doing likewise. It's like a poor weekend now in Supersport. And again, people sometimes scoff at the, the level of performance in Supersport, but it is much higher than a lot of people will prepared, be prepared to give it credit for. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, Cortese is a Moto3 world champion, um, yes. no less. Clozel has won Moto2 Grand Prix. Um, as And Krumenacker has been on podiums. Krumenacker has won World Supersport races and he's been in World Superbikes. Um, so these are class, class riders. Um, and mm -hmm. Mahias, not that he ever thinks he will, I'm not suggesting that for a second, but Mahias can't just afford to turn up and win races in Supersport just because Keenan's not around. Um, there are so many good riders in this class now that can knock him back, and he's going to have to fight for this. And, and, and I'm absolutely sure he will. Um, I mean, I know he had that, that car accident earlier in the season that certainly didn't help him, but I think that was long enough ago now for it not to be a, an excuse any longer. Um, he was just flat out beaten on pace by, by three other Yamahas last weekend and an MV. Um, so Mahias will be looking to strike back. The positive, as you mentioned, is that he's still only 12 points off the lead. So all it takes is a win, an extra amount of Bruno, and he could quite easily be back in the lead of the championship again. It is that close. Um, up the front. So uh, Mahai is still very much in contention, but perhaps with some questions to answer. Here's how the Super Swap race ended then. Cortese taking a fairly comfortable win in the end uh, by 1.3 seconds from Clazel. Uh, De Rosa took third on the MV Augusta. Krumenacker in fourth. Mahayas only fifth. Caracasulo sixth uh, on the fifth of the five factory-ish Yamahas up the front. Badavini seventh for MV, ahead of Thomas Gradinga, who's Clozell's teammate. He was eighth. Sheridan Marias on the Kawasaki that he has now inherited full-time from Safoglu, ninth. Uh, and Andy Irwin, because um, British Supersport regular last year, now a World Supersport regular with the uh, PTR Honda team. Uh, he took his best result of the season so far in tenth overall, beating Anthony West in a straight fight uh, to do it. Championship standings then, it's Clozell here, just seven points behind Cortese. Uh, Cortese leads the championship for the first time. Uh, Clozell second, Krumenaka third, uh, he's just eight points off the overall lead. Mahias is 12 off the lead in fourth. Uh, Caracasulo is 23 off the lead in fifth. Uh, then comes DeRosa sixth. Luke Stapleford, who is now a Yamaha rider, although he still rides for the Triumph team, uh, he's in seventh. 
Nikki Tuli, who's now a Moto 2 rider, of course, is 8th. Uh, Ant West, ninth, And Gradinger completes the top 10 overall. Now, on to Supersport 300. Uh, and if you've listened to the full Greg Haynes interview last week, and if you haven't, got your way to find it. It's a brilliant listen. Um, not that we're biased, but it is a brilliant listen. Um, and what was perhaps most interesting about that, Dre, was his um, analysis of the Supersport 300 class at the moment and the ill feeling um, that is going on in this series with the perceived lack of equality uh, amongst the different bikes. The Kawasaki, um, the KTM, the Yamaha, which of course won the championship last season but hasn't really looked like winning a race this year. Um, and the sole Honda in the field. Um, now, Kawasaki's have looked very strong for the most part of this season, but one thing that is very much clear is that one rider is a class above the rest, and that rider, once again, is Anna Carrasco. Yeah, this, it's the story of the weekend, really. That, you know, Carrasco you know, didn't have the best practice time this time around, had to go in the hard way through Super Bowl 1, got through Super Bowl 1, and just while the while some of the other, well, well, let's be honest, while the men in the field in Super Bowl 2 were once again tripping up over each other and, you know, trying to tow off each other and, you know, we got more shenanigans on track. Not, not as bad as it was in uh, in in, in, in mind you, but still pretty bad how, you know, we had, you know, guys tripping up over each other um, in that series. This time round, um, again, like in Super Bowl 2, prime example, Carrasco just was on her own set in laps and went and went and we just went faster and faster and faster lap after lap after lap and it was the last lap she did coming over the line is what stole pole position for Mike Perez right at the end um and yeah like race same deal again you know was we well, yeah, was roughed up a little bit in the early going but once she, she was able to find a way to break the toe and get out ahead she was unstoppable and yeah Carrasco it just seems to be finding a way of making these little differences and i think that a little bit of extra Moto3 experience um, is is reaping dividends right now. And she's showing a level of maturity and class over anything that's in the World Supersport 300 field at the moment. Like We've not seen like an early run of form this good, probably since Scott DeRue, right when the series started. Mm. I think that's the only uh, time in the series history that we've had back-to-back race wins for a rider. Yeah, exactly. So for Carrasco to do that, now, after a season and a half where the field's starting to find itself a little bit more now, the, the confidence and the, the the sheer outright speed that Carrasco has is incredibly impressive. Mm, it, it is. It's incredible. And uh, I did think, I have to say, I did think at the time, and this isn't me being wise after the, the event, It was uh, I did tweet it at the time, uh, but I did think in Super Bowl 1, I do wonder if this if she gets through, if this might prove to be a bit of an advantage for Carrasco, given that Friday's free practice uh, had been largely washed out by the rain, so no one had really had any dry track time going into Super Bowl. That if Carrasco just got some laps under and effectively treated Super Bowl one as an extra practice session, an extra fifty-minute practice session, um, that she might actually have a real advantage. And so it proved. She went into Super Bowl two, picked up where she left off, um, dominated in that session, and and never looked back. And as you say, she has this level of pace now in clear air that nobody has in World Supersport three hundred these days. She's just once she once she gets out front and gaps the field and breaks the toe. No one's catching her. Uh, and she's got this level of confidence now. Um, she's treating herself, I think, as as a world championship ch- challenger. And she's the favorite at the moment. I mean, the Supersport 300 class, to, just to confirm to everyone, is a class that only follows the European rounds of the season. So we're halfway now in this championship. We're into four races down of the eight we have this season um, in Supersport 300. So she's got a 20 three-point lead and only four races to go 
Um, so, it, so it's effectively in her hands. She can finish second now in the last four races and win the championship. Um, now, it may well be a little bit more complicated than that. This is Super Spot 300 right. after all. Um, but, but Dre, we, we did speak about it after she won uh, the race at Imola, took the championship lead. That I mean, she's become the first British, uh, first female winner of a world championship race, first female pole sitter. And we kind of said, could she become the first female world champion uh, in motorcycle racing history? She's odds on favourite now. You think? Um, absolutely. I mean, the way she's going right now, just a difference maker in the little extra differences that she has over the rest of the field right now. She has to be favourite for the championship now. She's just outright mullering these people now. Um, and she's just, again, just showing an extra level of intelligence that the rest of the field just doesn't have right now. So for me, from where, from where I'm sitting... Yeah, she's favourite for me to take the championship, and she should be the way she's riding at the moment. So yeah, having the thought about potentially the first ever female world champion in in, in bike racing, I'm here for it. Um, she's she's on fire right now, and she deserves all the praise she's getting. Yeah, she is. She is looking <laughs> the absolute title favourite at the moment, and uh, again, just how she's taking it all in a stride and just just absolutely dominating this class and just looking calm and looking like she belongs there. It, it is brilliant to see. Um, and again, Hazel Southwell, who, who we're sure was listening to this and was there at the weekend, um, was not afraid to admit on Instagram afterwards that she was in floods of tears um, watching Anna Carrasco stand on the podium, um, which is something, it is still something that we're not used to seeing uh, in general in, in a, what is a male dominated sport, um, in a sport that does still allow females to compete head to head against the men. Not many sports do that, of course. Many sports like football, mm-hmm. for instance cricket they still separate of course motorcycle racing and motorsport in general is not like that so we still cannot underplay and underestimate just how big an achievement and how big a story this is and could be um if carrasco can go and do this and go and actually win the whole championship um and become the first female to win a world motorcycle world championship um for men and women uh, it would be incredible because there are for instance there are um there is a women's motocross grand prix world championship and so on um, but this is a different level to that. So it is a huge story developing, and um, Anna Carrasco is doing a tremendous job um, at the moment in World 2 Sport. And uh, shout out as well to the David Salom Jr. team, uh, who took a 1-2 last weekend, um, their first 1-2 in the series, because the South African Doran Larero um, took second place, uh, Carrasco's teammate, um, in a final lap where, it has to be said, Scott DeRue fell like a stone. Uh, on that final mm. lap, he looked, didn't he, Dre? Like he had second place um, all sewn up with about two or three laps to go and suddenly plummeted back into that second group and then fell all the way back to sixth on the final lap. And given that Daru is one of the championship contenders, those are critical, critical points he may have given away on that final lap. Yeah, that's that, that that's alarming, in my opinion, that you know, Daru was able lost so much pace at the end like that needs to do better in future he's this is a guy that you know again had as a, as a lot of raw speed um was you know great in the series right out of the box but has regressed a little bit and uh yeah he, he should have had a comfortable second he ended up finishing down the order a little bit and yeah better better standard expected from a guy of, from a guy of the roost caliber mm, i have to say and, and i have to say just a, from a, a general point of view uh but i'm sure Dre will agree with that 
Good for once. Mm. Not that we, we do enjoy these World Super races, but good for once for a race not to give us the same level of heart palpitations that the previous two have. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. My heart yeah. appreciates it. Yeah, no no riders in hospital with potentially debilitating injuries, which was nice to see. Um, Stop. Given, given the mayhem that we saw in Imola and indeed on that final lap um, at Essen. Here's how it finished then. Carrasco, second consecutive victory. Um, and a 1-2 for the DS Junior team. Uh, leading home, Doran Larrero in second. Borja Sanchez, third um, for the ETG team. Enzo de la Vega, fourth. Kun Muffles, who is the rider who famously lost his brakes at the final chicane at Assen. Um, winner of the opening round, of course, at Aragon. He took Scott Derue on the final lap for fifth. Derue dropping to sixth. Uh, Yannick, the Dutchman, seventh on the Freudenberg KTM, ahead of Mika Perez, who, as Dre mentioned, was pipped to pole position by Carrasco on Saturday. Uh, Galang Hendra, ninth. And Luca Grunwald, the eventual winner at Assen, uh, finishing 10th ahead of Danny Valle in 11th. Uh, championship standings then with, as I mentioned, half the season gone now in Super Sport 300. Four races gone, four to go. Uh, Carrasco leads it on 73 points, 22 clear, not 23 as I said earlier on, 22 clear of Grunwald in second. Uh, Scott Daru drops to third, so those 10 points he gave you on the final lap really are costly because she, he trails Carrasco by 27. Um, fourth is Sanchez on 42, uh, level with Lorero. Uh, Muffles is 6th on 36. Glenn Van Stralen also on 36. He had a poor weekend at Donington. He crashed out of the race. Perez is 8th on 32. Uh, Jan Ole Janig 9th on 27. And Nick Kalinin, who's still in hospital, having injured and broken his leg at Imola. Uh, he continues to round out the top 10. He has 23 points, which is 50 behind the championship leader, Carrasco. Manufacturers Championship are led by Kawasaki. They are 12 clear of KTM in second. The very much disgruntled Yamaha mob, a third on 33, uh, with Honda fourth on just a single championship point. Uh, to round off last weekend's action, um, the Stockdowson race was won, as I mentioned earlier, by the dominant championship leader, Marcus Reiterberger. <coughs> Excuse me. That is his third win from four starts this season. He beat the uh, prettier rider, Max Sheep of Chile in second, uh, with Roberto Tamburini third. Um, those two across the line uh, were separated by just um, 18 thousandths of a second in the battle for second, with Tamburini taking third in the end. Luca Vitali fourth ahead of Florian Marino, fifth, and Federico Sandi in sixth place uh, in what is, apart from Reiterberger, a very much an Italian-dominated series. Reiterberger leads the championship, although his poor outing at Imola last time out means that despite winning three of the first four races, he is only 10 points clear of Tamburini in second. Tamburini also a BMW rider, although he does ride for a different team to Reiterberger. Uh, Max Sheev is third on 65 points. That's 21 off the overall lead. Federico Sandi, who's the top Ducati rider, he's fourth on 52, ahead of Luca Vitali on 42, and Florian Marino, who is the top Yamaha rider in the Stock 1000 class, on 42 points. Uh, that is 44 of the overall championship lead. And one more class that took place last weekend because the British Talent Cup, of course, supported um, the World Superbike action last weekend. And if you watched it free to air on Quest, you'll have seen the race live, covered by a friend of the show, Tom Brooks. Uh, it was won by Max Cook. Uh, he became the third different winner already in just four races this season in the British Talent Cup. That returns, uh, I believe, at Snetterton's British Superbike round um, later on in June. Next round, of course, of World Superbike, Super Sport 300 and indeed Stock 1000 is, as you listen to this, probably around a week from now. And that is in the Czech Republic at Bruno.
Right, on to the news. And uh, unfortunately, um, we begin with some very, very sad news because this is usually a moment of great excitement as one of the jewels in the motorsport and certainly motorcycle racing crowns, the Isle of Man TT, gets underway this week. Unfortunately, though, um, and unfortunately, this becomes a rather regular occurrence as we talk about the TT, uh, we have some tragic news to bring you um, because the uh, Manx rider, one of the popular riders on the road racing circuit, uh, Dan Neen, who, uh, as I mentioned, is a Manx rider. He's based on the Isle of Man. Uh, unfortunately, suffered an accident this week in free practice and lost his life um, at the scene, uh, having suffered that accident. Uh, Dan Neen, as I mentioned, a very, very popular rider. Uh, he was from Onchard on the Isle of Man, and he died at the age of 30. He suffered an accident at Churchtown. Uh, on the very first lap of Superbike qualifying um, on Wednesday night, May the 30th. Um, Dan, uh, who had previously won uh, three previous races on just his debut appearance at the Max Grand Prix, which is another of the Isle of Man-based uh, road racing events, the Max Grand Prix, which takes place later on in the summer. Um, he took three race wins on his debut there 10 years ago. He also took his first TT race podium last year in the Superstock class, finishing in third place. Um a very, very popular and much-loved member of the road racing fraternity. Um, and our thoughts are with his partner, Leanne, and his entire family and friends, uh, Dan Neen, who passed away this week at the age of 30. Uh, TT racing continues um, throughout this week, of course. It is a, a feature of the TT as tragic and as you know impossible to get our heads around as it is. But, of course, the show does go on on the Isle of Man this week. Of course, regular highlights across ITV4. If you have uh, access to the free-to-air ITV4 in the UK, you can watch regular highlights from the island. Um, and we will update you on the results of all of the races as they unfold um, on next week's episode 63 of Bike Live. We just, from all of us here at Motorsport 101 Bike Live, just wish everyone on the Isle of Man a very, very safe TT. Absolutely. Now, one other event that took place last weekend that we want to update you on because we know that a whole one listener um, was keen to find out from us how the Speedway GP season is going on. Um, and it wasn't Rebecca James, um, just to point out. She, by the way, her absence is the essential reason why we haven't covered it as often as we uh, would because she is the authority on this series. Dre and I are not. Um, but, the, uh, but the Speedway GP series moved on last weekend to the Czech Republic. Uh, at Marquetta Stadium, round two of the championship. Round one, incidentally, um, the round that we didn't mention a couple of weeks ago, was won by the Brit Time Wuffenden, former world champion, of course. Um, this time, it was won by Freddie Lindgren, um, who uh, was the championship leader coming out of the first round. Just to explain, for those of you who are more regular uh, listeners to the uh, motorcycle racing series on regular racetracks and not Speedway, and are wondering why the championship leader from the first round isn't the rider that won the race, um, it's because they essentially have a semi-finals and finals format. Um, I appreciate those of you who listen to Speedway regularly already know this, um, but the, essentially the top point scorer on the night may not necessarily win the whole event, um, as was proven in the first round in Sweden, where Freddie Lindgren was the top point scorer, but was beaten in the outright final by Ty Wuffenden. Uh, Lindgren did not make that, make that same mistake last weekend. He did both by taking the top point scorer of 16 and winning the final ahead of Patrick Dudek, um, who also took three wins on the night uh, to finish second. Emil Saifudinov, the Russian, in third. Uh, Ty Wofunden, who had won four of his six races prior to the final uh, and was then beaten into last place, he finished fourth overall ahead of Bex's favourite. I appreciate she has many of them. Uh, Matze Yonofsky in fifth. Jason Doyle reigning champion, sixth. Nicky Pedersen, the 
great villain in Speedway 7th, and Artem Laguta 8th. Uh, big names such as Greg Hancock uh, and Matej Zagar didn't even make the semis, just to show how uh, high the level was. Um, Lindgren leads the championship, a point clear of Wuffenden in second. Um, Patrick Dudek is third. There's already a seven-point gap between Wuffenden and Dudek in second and third, uh, with Yudoski level with his fellow Pole uh, in fourth. Emil Saifudinov is fifth on 23, ahead of Luguta on 21, Zagar on 16, and Chris Holder is in eighth position on 16 points. Reigning champion Jason Doyle already struggling down in 10th spot and 18 points off the overall championship lead. Uh, now, injury news to bring you. Right at the end of last week's show, we told you about the dreadful accident that Shaky Byrne had suffered in testing at Snetterton. Um, and, uh, of course, we wished him well and we continue to do so. Um, the full story of his injuries are becoming more and more apparent. He confirmed on social media this week um, just how beaten up he was. Um, and for those of you who are a little squeamish, uh, you might want to skip ahead a bit on this one. You might not want to listen um, to this full catalogue of injuries because it is awful. Um, oh, Shaky yeah. Bird, who had this testing crash at Stetson, of course, a crash that we haven't seen because it wasn't televised. It was a pre-season test or a mid-season test, should I say. Um, Shaky Bird, and I quote, I've got two bruised lungs. All of my ribs are fractured. All of my ribs are fractured. Yeah. Um, I've got four broken vertebrae. My neck is broken in two places. I've got a broken sternum, collarbone, and multiple other back fractures. Fortunately, there was no paralysis, which is a big, big bonus, as that was a real concern at first. I'm pretty beaten up, but a rehab program always starts as soon as a crash ends. It is a long road ahead, but for once, I got a great start. Um, great that he's still able to joke about how poor his starts are in races. Um, but... I mean, Shaky Byrne is the most positive human being in the world uh, at the best of times, Dre. Uh, he's always so affable and so smiley and so happy and so jovial when he's interviewed before or after races in BSB. Um, but just to underline a point that you made last week on this show, um, and having heard the full details of this accident, how the hell is Shaky Byrne not paralysed? Right, this, like... Broken neck in two places, fractured every rib and multiple back fractures. I have no idea how he's relatively okay as a result of all this. Again, not para not paralyzed. And again, it was said a couple of weeks ago, he will make a full recovery from this, which, is, which again is fantastic news. Um, I also think he should start going to church because we're clearly in the presence of a miracle. Um, I, I, don't, I do not know how he's come through that relatively unscathed. Um, reading off the list of injuries was just ridiculous. Like I, I, again, I mentioned it two weeks ago. It, it sounded like the injuries of a guy that's not riding again this season. And now I'm 110% sure he's not riding this season. Um, but then again, I don't really care. I'm just glad that he, he, he will have a full quality of life, whatever happens. And, you know, I, I have no doubt he will get back on the bike and ride again, most likely next season after you know, a, a full amount of time to recover. But, uh, oh boy, um, that, that was a big one by all accounts. And, you know, we were very lucky that it wasn't any form of permanent damage we're talking about here, or even worse, just straight up paralysis. Mm, yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible story. And we, we talked last year about Valentino Rossi's return from a broken leg in, in a couple of weeks to go and ride um, at Aragon um, at the age of 38. But for Shaky Bird, if he rides again in British Superbikes and is back at this level that he's been at in previous years, challenging for championships, at what next year, when this next next season starts, the 2019 season, he'll be 42 years old. 
would yeah. be one of the great comeback stories um, in sport, let alone motorcycle racing. In sport, I mean, he's got absolutely nothing to prove. He's got absolutely no real reason to, to come back and race, other than it's his life. It's what he does, and he clearly loves the sport so much. And, you know, shout out and our thoughts to his, his wife, Kendra, and to his family who have been, you know, going through turmoil in the last week as uh, they've essentially mm. seen their seen their, their husband or their, their father with what resembles a birdcage around his head, um, yeah. given, given how severe the injuries were. Um, I mean, it, it, it doesn't bear thinking about how bad this could have been, but the fact that he's intent on riding and racing again um, is incredible. It just goes to show, once again, if we need to, just how motorcycle racers are a breed apart. Um, in not just the things that they uh, are prepared to go through, but what they're prepared to put their mind, body, and soul through just to do what they love doing. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't bear thinking about some of the things that they they have suffered and are prepared to overcome and recover from to to go out there and compete on the on and do what they love doing. And yeah, our our untold respect to Shaky Burn and yes, uh, uh, for what he's going through and just how he's continuing again to remain so positive about it all, Dre. Yeah, that, that takes quite, quite a lot of fortitude. And um, yeah, I mean, again, it, it would be nothing short of a miracle if he came back at 42 next season and started riding um, in BSB again. That would be absolutely insane. Um, again, like, I, like he's a better man than me than being able to joke about basically almost dying on circuit like that and again having a very near miss to only have what he had and i say that in inverted commas um again I, I, like i did actually get a small chuckle out of the picture of luke mossy tweeting that he was in a facetime with him and yeah. again basically yeah seeing the birdcage and having a good joke about it bless him um but uh yeah um again i, I hope shaky i hope shaky makes a full recovery and I'm, I'm glad i'm sure he will um, even if it doesn't mean he ever rides again, but if he does, it would be nothing short of incredible. Yeah, incredible. He's, uh, I mean, he's he, very few people um, command as much respect in in motorcycle racing, certainly in Britain, than, than Shaky Bird. But um, if possible, I think he's, he's even managed to go even further up in our estimations based on what he's gone through um, just lately. We wish him all the very best as he continues his recovery um, from a catalogue of injuries um, that he suffered in Snetterton a week or so ago. Um, now let's turn our attentions towards this weekend. It is the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello. We'll talk about the race weekend itself in a moment. Um, but on the eve of this race weekend, Andrea Iannone has confirmed, of course, Andrea Iannone, one of the many Italians taking part this weekend, although it's fair to say the majority of the capacity crowd are only having their eyes on one of them. Um, but Andrea Iannone, he's confirmed he's departing Suzuki. Um, we don't know yet where he's going. Smart Money is potentially Aprilia, um, despite Alicia Spargo's calls for Scott Redding inexplicably to be retained. Um, at that team. Um, but Andrea yeah. Iannone departing Suzuki Dre. I mean, this, of course, has several knock-on effects, perhaps for the likes of Juan Mir, who's been linked with Suzuki, and Jorge Lorenzo, who's been linked with Suzuki, um, and others. Um, but sticking with Iannone for the moment, I mean, he has come on strong in the last two or three rounds. He's looked much back like the Andrea Iannone that we saw towards the end of 2015 on that Ducati. But... If we're looking at, rather than looking at two or three rounds in isolation and looking at the entire Yunone-Suzuki experiment, is it fair to say it probably on balance hasn't worked? Uh, yeah, on balance. It's an understandable parting of the ways for those two. He's um, probably not the rider, unfortunately, as a factory. You can put any great deal of trust in long term, is he? 
No, I just I just don't think you can build a team around that guy. Um, I'm not fully convinced you can build a team around Rins yet either, mind you. But Ian only was meant to be coming in there to spearhead the team's factory efforts, and it's just not worked out, really. Um, the results don't seem to show for it, and from all accounts, he's been a bit of a PR nightmare since joining that team. He doesn't really care. He's often, you know, taken, you know, many other... Um, outlets. He's a, he's a big party guy. He's been often partying in Suzuki gear and making a bit of an ass of himself. He's, it's just not really worked out for Andrea. Um, I just don't think it's the right fit for a rider of his ability. Maybe he was better playing the number two or playing second fiddle to behind Dovi when he was at Ducati together and you know, he could keep himself a little bit quieter. I mean, I, I said, on balance, probably the right move. Um, for Suzuki on this one. It just wasn't working. That's not going to be a guy you, you want to spearhead your team on. And there's other options out there. And I, I'm, I'm curious to see what, what path Suzuki take next. Mm, better and um, perhaps more pertinently younger options out there. It does mm. seem as if Suzuki are looking to try and build their team around younger riders that they can then um, you know, develop and mould into future champions as they... Um, well, I was about to say, as they've done with Marek Vinales, but he hasn't gone on to win a championship since leaving. But he certainly um, became a very strong MotoGP rider whilst in Suzuki's midst. Um, and Rins might well do the same. And they may well look at Joan Mir as following that very, very same model. Um, if Mir does indeed choose to join that team. Um, we'll, we'll probably talk, as these rider signings are announced in more detail, about MotoGP silly season. Because there are still some very key pieces that need to fall into place um, at... Uh, at MotoGP teams up and down the pit lane um, but with limited time uh, this week um, we'll talk about the likes of Lorenzo and Mir and where they're going to land um, in future shows because it looks as if Holly Lorenzo is going to announce his future at uh, Montmelo the next round uh, in Barcelona which is two weeks from now um, and perhaps Joan Mir's future is going to be announced by then as well so we'll update you in future weeks on that um, but this weekend is the Italian Grand Prix at Michello. now should it rain pre-race we now know what the grid procedure is going to be um, because, of course, we had controversy and confusion on the grid pre-Argentina. Um, and this news, or the news of the proposals for what will be done in future, kind of broke as we were recording last week's show, so we didn't get a chance to squeeze it onto last week's episode. Um, so we'll talk about it now, because it has now been set in stone and confirmed by the, uh, by the MotoGP commission. Now, essentially, um, according to the new rules, should it rain pre-race, um, or should the conditions change in a, in a race... Um, i.e. wet to dry or dry to wet. Um, there are now punishments in place for riders who do what 99% of the grid did in Argentina and push their bikes off the grid. Um, should that happen again, should a rider push their bike off the grid um, before the formation lap starts, they will still be allowed to start the race from where they qualified, from their original grid position, but they will then have to serve a ride-through penalty in the race. First of all, Dre, on that element of the rules, I think we're all in agreement. Yeah, that's for, yeah, yeah. I, I on that one uh, to be done, um, given what happened in Argentina and their, and their nature of trying to avoid a repeat. That that one's understandable mm, because of course Jack Miller uh, has gained near enough no advantage from his correct call on tyres. Um, so basically, if a repeat of Argentina happens again, where everyone bar one rider goes into the pits. Everyone bar that one rider will start where they qualify and all have to serve a right through penalty um, in the race. Um, now, should a rider now decide at the end of the formation lap, I want to come in and change to a, i.e. from a wet bike to a dry bike or vice versa, they will now have to start the race from the pit lane as before, 
but they will also have to serve a ride-through penalty. Now, this, on the face of it, Dre, seems rather draconian. It does. I, I, I don't like this one. I don't like this one at all. I mean, I, why do you feel the need to have a double whammy here? Like, the law, like the, the punishment of starting from the pit lane once everybody's clear turn one, you're going to be at the back of the field and you're probably going to be about five to ten seconds off the lead already. In my opinion, that's punishment enough. I don't see why you feel the need to then add another, you know, 20, 25 second drive through penalty, ride through penalty um, on top of that as well, which is going to put you in no man's land performance wise. So, um, I, I I don't I don't get this one. I don't get this one at all. Um it's it's mind-boggling to me. Um I don't see what you gain in having two sets of penalties here for, you know, a team changing over. I know you want to I know you want to somewhat avoid log jams in the pit lane. Um and for that I understand it, but I don't think this is the right way of trying to avoid that problem. Mm, yeah, it is. I mean, I I'm kind of torn on it. Uh, I mean, I agree. Uh, it seems too much of a penalty. And sometimes, tactically, when watching a race, I look at riders boxing at the end of the formation like to change from a dry bike to a wet bike. And I think that's quite a quite an interesting tactical move. Uh, and sometimes that can really benefit a rider. Think Livio Loy um, in the Moto3 race. I know that wasn't a race with uh, flag to flag. It was a race with flat-out tyre changes. Um, but John McPhee in that race, he boxed at the end of the formation lap and got a podium out of it. Um, that probably wouldn't happen under these rules um, in that any advantage you would gain from making a late call on tyres gets negated by the ride-through. Um, but to play devil's advocate a little bit, I, I just think race direction are so desperate to avoid a repeat of Argentina that they're putting this extra penalty in place to essentially prevent not just this scenario, but the scenario we got at Silverstone where they had to red flag it, or um, at Saxon Ring all those years ago, where we had two-thirds of the field in pit lane, which is inherently dangerous. I just think they're so desperate to avoid that scenario coming up again that they're putting this penalty in place so that no rider will even consider it. Um, that they'll even yeah. consider coming into pit lane, which, which again, you could argue perhaps removes a tactical element and a piece of intrigue from the race. Um, and I totally understand that, but I just think race direction, just they don't want egg on their face again, do they? Um, right. And, and they're trying to avoid it. And... Um, there are now measures in place where uh, if riders all funnel into the pit lane, um, as long as it's less than 10, I believe the figure is, um, that they will still start the race as normal. Those nine or less riders will all have to line up, line a stern in pit lane, so they won't all be able to sort of jockey around on the pit exit. They'll have to line up in line a stern, single file, and start the race in that order that they line up at the end of the pit lane. Um, which, again, is a smart measure to stop riders all trying to jockey around in a very narrow pit lane on their way out. They'll all have to go out one by one. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, they're essentially trying to stop riders from... The, the, the two scenarios they're afraid of are riders um, trying to delay a start by all funneling into pit lane and also the danger of a mass pit lane start, which I can understand, but I think they've perhaps gone a little too far um, in the measures that they've gone... Uh, that they've put in place to try and prevent it. It doesn't look, looking at the weather forecast, as if they're going to need that procedure this weekend, it has to be said. Uh, Magello, dry weather and uh, pretty calm and uh, sunny and warm weather is forecast this weekend. And it's not a day of classics, Dre, um, this weekend, of course, but 
And mm. really, if we're looking at motorcycle racing terms, MotoGP kind of doesn't have its Le Mans 24 hours or its Monaco Grand Prix, does it? But if MotoGP was to consider any race of its 18, 19 this year on the calendar, it's dueling the crown. Would it probably be Mugello? Yes, um, I think that has to be, especially given the rise of Valentino Rossi and winning six straight. When you know the this sport's is a biggest brilliant period. motorcycle circuit too. It, yeah, it's a fantastic track. It's a fantastic location. It gets massive crowds. Um, it is a hotbed for brilliance in Moto Three. We've had many a classic fight over the years in there. This this is as perfect an all round venue for MotoGP as there is on the today um so yeah for me Magella is my favorite round on the calendar every year and i can't wait to see how this year's plays out yeah it's gonna be exciting to see the uh, ducatis uh in previous years have been hitting 220 miles an hour um uh, down oh, the main yeah. straight at Magello. it's um it is one of those races where you see those top speeds uh, records get shattered um and it is going to be a fascinating weekend, of course. Ducatis will be looking to fight back. It's a circuit that's expected to favour them. Of course, they'll have Michele Pirro um, out as a wild card for them this weekend as well. Tito Rabat, incidentally, another Ducati rider. He has been declared fit, um, at least for free practice, although by the time you listen to this podcast, you will know whether he indeed raced or not, um, given the injuries he sustained in the test in Catalonia. Um, big weekend this for, for Ducati. Of course, home round. They need to try and arrest the slide that has been... Uh, in place since their win in the opening round in Qatar. Mark Marquez, of course, has won the last three. Um, but as well, not just for Andrea Vizioso and Ducati, but it's a big weekend, of course, as always, at Mugello for Valentino Rossi. Um, and just in general for Movistar Yamaha. I mean, Simon Patterson this week tweeted some stats that um, someone had requested about who's led the most laps so far this year. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, the more I think about it, I, I should have known. But I couldn't believe when I read this story that so far this year... Neither Movistar Yamaha rider has not even so much as led a single lap of a Grand Prix this year. And we're at round six. Yikes. Um, that's terrifying. Yeah, and um, uh, 100,000 plus are, tuning, are turning up this weekend, chainsaws and all, and they only want to see one rider lead that race. Yeah, and um, I hate to break it to you folks, but there's a good chance that's not happening. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's... I'm stunned in in in, in the bookies uh, room there that, that Rossi's third favorite. I can't see it. I can't get there with Valentino this time around. It's just the movie star Yamaha just isn't good enough at the at the moment to justify that lower price. Yeah, we're gonna we're um, gonna find out just how progress they genuinely did make at the Catalonia test. Yeah, this is a big test. This is a massive test, and uh, you know I I expect Marquez and Dovi to be at the front of the field. Um, Lorenzo will probably factor into play as well, given that. He starts well. So uh, this is going to be a true test for Yamaha. I mean, if they really have, as they claim, made progress on finding grip and you know, using the electronics and, and improving on, um, on in that regard, then this has got to be the one because like, this is going to be, you know, the, the round where they're going to want to win, especially Valentino more than maybe any other. Mm, yeah, I mean, looking at the uh, looking at the sky, but oh, if you want to be well, looking for a bit of value, I suppose. I mean, where can we find it, Dre? Danilo Petrucci, twelve to one um, for for a first win this weekend. I mean, he was second there last year. Um, oh, sorry, third there last year on the on the Ducati. So um, Ducati is likely to go well this weekend. Um, you can get Jack Miller for a podium, twelve to one. Um, sure. as well, which might be worth a bit of a, a bit of value as well. Um, but it is lucky. I mean. 
this is another one. I mean, well, look, we're pretty much handing Matt Marquez the trophy in tournaments and purposes anyway at this stage. But this is another round, isn't it, where the Honda, based on previous form, and I know they probably made strides this year, but based on previous form, given how you need to get out of that last corner to have any hope of winning if it's a close fight, this is a round that really Matt Marquez shouldn't be winning. But... Haven't we been saying that for the last two rounds exactly. now? And if he wins, if he wins this one, just turn the lights out. Quite frankly, um, yeah, we're done here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he did go pretty quickly at the Mugello test that everyone pretty much talks about for the fact that he crashed there. Um, yeah. and, and we're concerned that he felt that he'd injured himself. Obviously, he hadn't. Cause he went. He then turned up at Le Mans and won. Um, so, um, so um, yeah, it could well be a Marquez Davizioso shootout again this weekend. This was probably the round where he had his least competitive round last year, didn't he? Because he finished down in sixth um, at this round last season. So um, it's going to be an interesting one to watch just to see how competitive Mark Marquez is this weekend. Um, don't rule out a win at all. He's, um, he's, you know, it'd be strange things that happen to Mark Marquez winning at Mugello, for goodness sake. So um, we'll see how that one goes this weekend. As Dre mentioned, though, perhaps the highlight of this weekend may well come in the first race of the weekend. Um, because very few races have pretty much a guarantee of delivering a 10 out of 10 race than Moto3 at Mugello. And this is perhaps one race they're predicting Albert Arenas as a race winner. Wouldn't sound all that stupid. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> anyone in the top 25 is in contention. Yes. I will say that boldly right now. I like. I have no idea what's going to happen in Mugello Moto3. You might as well play, you might as well play darts if, to pick a winner on that one because uh, good luck on that one. It's going to be carnage. You will probably get a leading group of 20. Um, there will be chaos going into turn one on numerous occasions. It's going to be a hell of a show. And, uh, yeah, good luck picking a winner on that one. If you do, you're a better man than me. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it either way. Um, without sounding too, um, too safe, my, my tip would be Marco Bezzecchi, not just because he's championship leader, but how good was that KTM down the straights in Le Mans? Um, if that bike's anywhere near the front of the race on the final lap, he's just going to motor past people, isn't he? Um, so so we shall see. Of course, Italian riders lead Moto3 and Moto2 this weekend with Pecco Bagnaia, the Moto2 championship leader. Um, perhaps don't expect Moto2 to quite deliver in the same way that Moto3 will but of course Moto2 did bring us a fantastic final lap this year uh, last year sorry in the form of Mattia Pasidi's third to first um, double overtake on the final lap so uh, either way it is the perhaps the jewel in the MotoGP crown and it is a new circuit that pretty much always delivers great racing it's a brilliant racetrack that is pretty much laid out to deliver fantastic racing so we look forward to what Mugello provides in 2018 whatever it does provide we'll review it all next week on episode 63 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 uh, as we review the Italian Grand Prix uh, at Mugello as well as that next week we have episode 143 uh, of Motorsport 101 um, next week. Two races to, to bring you next week on Motorsport 101. They both come from the same place because, Dre, it is the IndyCar Duel in Detroit. It is indeed the Duel in Detroit taking place and uh, the return of my beloved Hinchcliffe. But, um, <laughs> yeah. After fun his, times. Uh, unfortunate absence. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, the Duel in Detroit um, was a fun time last year. Graham Rahal taking both wins. The first time ever that the Detroit have been, but both races have been won by the same dude. Um, somehow, I don't think that's going to happen again, given how wide open the field is at the moment. Um, possibility of rain on the horizon as well for at least one round, too. Detroit traditionally gets a, gets a fair amount of moisture in the air around that sort of time of year. 
it could also be the last one for it because there's a lot of talk about potentially it being dropped from the calendar. Um, so a lot of talk about that as well. So yeah, all the fallout from the IndyCar duel in Detroit next week, and uh, oh, not much else. Maybe, maybe I have to crank, maybe I have to crank open the mailbag one more time. It's been a while um, yeah. on that one, yeah. but uh, yeah, the duel in Detroit and IndyCar. All, all the extra news and fallout from F1 as well, I'm sure. A little bit of IMSA, I think, as well, will probably be filtered into there as well. Um, but yeah, episode 143 of Motorsport 101 next week. Yeah, keep an eye out for that. Between now and then, you can still get in touch with us um, in a variety of places, including Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, follow us on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101, where, as I mentioned at the start of the show, you can still find our full on-demand uh, coverage of Day of Classics 3, both the Monaco Grand Prix um, and the Indy 500 um, covered on there. We'll have to do a, uh, a Google Hangout watch party for a motorcycle race at some stage, won't we? That'll be an awful lot we, of fun. We will. Uh, later yes. in the year. Maybe if one of the MotoGP classes goes down to the wire, we might well um, make an exception for that. We shall see later this year. If there's, any, if, there's a, if there's a will for it, if you all want it, let us know via those social media platforms and we'll try and mm-hmm. figure it out later this year. Um, you can also find us uh, on Patreon if you want to back us financially and have early access to our weekly shows. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. $5 backing earns you early access to our podcast. $10 backing um, earns you access to our Discord server and the ability to listen to our shows live as they are recorded. Um, all of the information can be found at our new home, um, which Dre still hasn't tired of hearing, motorsport101.com. And that's motorsport101.com. Hear that, guys? Motorsport101.com. Um, you can find our website right there. Much more written content coming um, as we go. Huge thank you, by the way, to all of you while we're at it, um, who have uh, tuned in, or I don't suppose you tune into websites, do you? But you know what I mean. That have headed over to motorsport101.com to... Uh, to check out Hazel's latest Formula E piece, which is one of the most read pieces we've ever had um, on oh, our yeah. website. Um, so a huge thank you to all of you that have gone in touch for that. Uh, Hazel's work is absolutely brilliant and much more coming as well with Patrick Hofstetter joining the online team there as well. So modestpot101.com to find all of that. Um, right then, for myself and Andre Harrison, it's a huge thank you to all of you um, for listening. We had Turkish Delight, we had Double Dutch, at Donington Park this weekend. The weekend belonged to Magic Mike. We will see you next week for episode 63. Bye for now.